Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Paid content, paid experiences. And I think the media in general has been so frightened of the prospect of doing that that they just ignored it and said, we're the only business that's afraid to charge for what it is we do. Welcome to the Sports Business Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Berger. This week's featured guest, Gary Honig, the editorial director of the Players' Tribune. Gary also spent 20 years at ESPN Publishing, helped launch ESPN the magazine. If you are a journalism student, this is a must-listen interview for you. Gary's going to give you the tools that you need to succeed in journalism. How do you monetize media today? Gary will discuss that. What are the elements for a sticky story? How do you tell your story and have it resonate? We'll discuss that as well. How do you get a story to go viral? We'll discuss that with Gary Honig as well, the editorial director for the Players' Tribune. You can find the Sports Business Radio podcast over 13 years, 400 episodes featuring conversations with people like Mark Cuban, David Stern, Jeannie Buss, Charles Barkley, Jack Nicholas, and Kyrie Irving on iTunes or at sportsbusinessradio.com. We're ranked in the top 100 of the business news podcast section on iTunes. The Sports Business Radio podcast, why should you listen? We're going to help you learn directly from top sports and business executives athletes turn business people, content creators, and those working in and around the sports world. Whether you work in the sports or business world, you're a student trying to work in sports, or you just want to add overall business skills to your tool belt. We're going to bring you knowledge that you can apply to your life immediately after listening to our podcast each week. Follow us in between podcasts on Twitter at SB Radio. We've been named a top 50 followed by Forbes.com for three consecutive years and on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. Enjoy this episode with Gary Honig of the Players Tribune. From its first post, Derek Jeter's Players Tribune that went up on October 1st, 2014 has been direct communication from athletes. Since the launch, nearly 1,400 athletes have contributed their first person stories. My guest on this week's show is Gary Honig, the editorial director of the Players Tribune. He formerly led ESPN Publishing for nearly 20 years. You can find the Players Tribune online at playerstribune.com or on Twitter at Players Tribune. Gary, thanks for joining us. How are you? My pleasure to come back, Brian. How are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You guys have grown so much. But let's start, for people that aren't intimately familiar with the Players Tribune, tell the story about how the site came to be. Uh, in the last, uh, I think, two years of Derek's career, uh, Jamie Messer, who's the founder of the company with Derek and was his marketing partner at uh, Excel when she was over there, came up with this idea. I think that Eric, not Eric, Derek, um, over his career, has mastered the art of dealing with the New York press probably better than any big-name athlete in the history of the city. Uh, having said that, um, he found it very difficult to uh, navigate the waters of what was becoming, uh, I think, an increasingly deteriorating relationship between athletes and media for some understandable reasons that we can get into later. In any event, he wanted a place 
a safe space, if you would, for athletes to tell their own stories, to bring their own narratives to the fans, and um, one that wasn't mediated by anybody else. When, when I say that, of course, we help the athletes um, sharpen their their vision of themselves, um, but it's no different than any other first-person piece that's run in publications I've done, publications other people have done. Um, and I think we've achieved uh, some portion of what he wanted to achieve. Yeah, 1,400 athletes. I mean, that's a lot of athletes. When you're pitching this to athletes or their PR people or their agents, what's the pitch? Pitch is basically we have no agenda. Uh, we want to bring the athlete to a place where they can tell the story of their own lives without fear of any distortion, without fear of any um, quotes being pulled out of context, uh, where they have the final say about what's being written. And uh, we feel that that sort of authenticity, uh, the sort of directness of it that the athletes bring to it, enhances the image of almost everybody. I don't think this is necessarily limited to athletes, but certainly for athletes who face the media on a regular basis. This is an opportunity to put their story out there and, in effect, have others be able to reflect off it before they ask them a bunch of questions. Gary, you are a master storyteller. You've been around this business a long time. What is the recipe for a successful, sticky story that resonates in your mind? I think a couple of things have been true, uh, certainly true when I started the SPN magazine, and I think are eternal beyond the changes in distribution. First off, never lose sight of yourself as a reader or a fan. Don't think of yourself as writing or editing for other professionals. Think of what actually moves you, why you're passionate about any given thing, in this particular case, sports. And, uh, and if you can find that sweet spot um, where you're telling a story that you know is going to move people, that's going to make people reflect, it's going to make people identify with the person who's doing the story, then you've reached the point where you've got a golden story. I don't, I don't think that changes, to be honest, and I think sometimes it's certainly been true of me in my career. You lose sight of that. Uh, stories become about the writer or about the editor's vision. It's not about that. You can't lose sight of being a fan. And, and what we've done here is go back to some of the uh, emotional roots of what makes people care about sports. I will say this. I had never heard of Corey Hirsch, retired NHL player, before I read yeah. his story on the Players' Tribune. Gary, I'll tell you, it, it really hit home with me and resonated with me, and it was so emotional. The story's titled Darkness, Darkness, Darkness. It's about his battle with OCD. That's a story that I saw other athletes retweeting, people from across the sports world, but then just the common person. That that story really resonated uh, and, and hit a chord with a lot of people. I think it's a perfect example of what we found uh, that resonates with the site. Um, two things about that story. First of all, um, the athlete is not particularly well-known. Um, it's not like he's bringing you know, a few million Twitter followers to it. Um, but the quality of his story and the authenticity of his story, to use that word, it's overused, but I think in this case it's accurate. The genuine sincerity of the story he's telling <clears throat> makes it resonate with people. First of all, people who have suffered from that that disorder or have friends or relatives who suffered from it. <clears throat> and then to the ordinary person who finally gets to see what some athletes go through under the pressure of their jobs, which is which is thing, which has been really interesting for me, is hockey. Right? If you're a sports editor that works for ESPN or Bleacher Report or any big sports media organization, hockey is the forgotten child. It's just not interested. 
In our particular case, what we discovered, which I think is an important thing to remember about the value of digital media, hockey is a huge vertical. The fans are passionate, they're underserved, and you can finally reach them through the powers of digital media, which means we've connected to that fan base, and you know, six of our top 20 stories are hockey stories. And not a few of them are stories like Corey Hurst's story, which is not the biggest stars in hockey. They're about hockey players that have gone through hell and come back again. It's amazing. So walk us through that process. Corey says, all right, I want to tell my story on the Players' Tribune. I know that you have people on your team that work with the athletes to extract the best parts of that story. And then, obviously, you work with the athlete for the final product. But walk us through what that looks like. Because I get that question all the time. Hey, is it just someone sitting down and writing a story and submitting it to the Players' Tribune? How does that process work? Um, we have a very dedicated and uh, passionate group of editors who will, an editor will sit down with an athlete, spend some time having an informal conversation, and then the tape will go on. The conversation can be lengthy. Uh, I think the, the key part of the conversation is like any good reporter, the editor will stop at a certain part and say, hey, tell me more about that. Uh, most people, when they talk about themselves, are so used to their own stories that they don't often know where the, the, the nugget of interest really lies. And they find that nugget and extract the detail that makes the athlete open up and that makes his story come to life. When that interview is over, the transcript is turned into something resembling a story with a, with a lead and you know structure that is a little bit more organized. And then the process of editing goes on. It goes back to the athlete takes a look and may have something to say and they have a lot to say about what they want to say. A real effort is meant to keep as much of the athlete's conversation authentic to the tape as possible. Of course there are transitions written. Of course there are places where the spoken word is not as clear as, as an edited sentence. But the athlete has the opportunity to say, I wouldn't say that or I wouldn't say it that way. And that process can go back and forth several times or it can go back once or twice. Once that's over and the athlete's approved, then the story is published. The other thing of, of about your stories, and in particular this one that we're talking about with Corey Hirsch, the photography. To me, that's what sets your stories apart from any other platform is the photography is off the charts. And it, again, it, it brings out emotion that I don't see with other digital platforms. Maybe you can talk a little bit about where that enters the story. Um, the, the, the photo editors are always directly engaged with the, uh, with our editors in terms of where they're going with the story. They have a good sense of what the, the, the focus of the story is. They try to make the, the photos match. And I think for that reason, you're not seeing a lot of generic photography on our site. You're not seeing a lot of action photography that's frankly become an outdated cliche with the advent of highlights everywhere. Um, a lot of time is spent on it. And I think we have access to parts of athletes' lives. These photos are owned by the athletes and by us. So if anybody wants to use them, any fees we collect are shared by the athletes. And most, if not all, media outlets don't get access to those parts of athletes' lives that we do. So you're seeing things that you might otherwise not see. Also, we have a staff of amazing drivers that we use. Walter Ios is on our, uh, our board. Um, he's an award-winning photographer for Sports Illustrated for forever. Um, uh, Jeff Jacobson works with us. Jeff Jacobson works with us. Um, I could go on and on about who's on our staff, but we just have uh, made an effort to put first-rate photographers on. And I think, you know, I found this was true at ESPN the magazine uh, as well. 
that if you have great visuals, you can carry a site for a certain amount of time until you establish your footing uh, in other platforms. So photography will make a big difference if you haven't quite figured out how to make the words resonate the way you want. And I think that's that's the truth for us and for other publications as well. Gary Honig, the editorial director of the Players Tribune, is joining us. Let's talk about landmark announcements, because the Players' Tribune has become the spot for big announcements, whether it was Kobe Bryant's retirement, Kevin Durant signing with the Warriors, many, many others. But does it go back to just the comfort level of the athlete speaking in his or her own voice on your platform? Is that why these big announcements are happening there? I think so. I mean, you know, these it's difficult to mediate between an athlete's long-standing relationships with media in their hometown or with national press to always get those announcements. But, you know, for some athletes, particularly when it's going to be a difficult announcement, like Kevin's was, they want to go to a place where they're not going to have a million microphones in their faces before they announce. Um, and it just makes life easier for them. Not everybody does it, but, uh, I mean, I think Hannah Jeter announcing that she was uh, pregnant was a good one. Um, and she got a chance to tell us about a whole bunch of things about Derek. They, uh, <laughs> that, yeah, that was great. Read. Right. So, uh, you know, you, you, you don't have to just be announced. And the value of that, I mean, I think also we had a, Ray Allen announced his retirement in the middle of a letter to his younger self that was uh, that had much more uh, detail about Ray's life than just the fact that he was retiring. But the fact that the announcement was in there uh, took the, the audience way up. So for us, we prefer to use those announcements as an opportunity to get to some in-depth place with the story and not just have it be a 30-second read. And it's for this reason. We have an extraordinary amount of uh, retention, I mean, time spent on our site. People spend over five minutes a page on our site, which is far above the industry standard. We'd like to sustain that for everything we do. And even with announcements, we want more than just, I'm announcing that I'm going to this team. Uh, We'd like a little bit more in-depth about why you made the decision or what this is in the stage of your life. Um, and that makes a difference for the athlete, too, because it's not just a financial decision they're announcing. It's, a, it's why I made the decision. Here's what was going on in my life. I have a wife and kids. I have a life. i got to figure it out. I want You know, there's so much more depth to why athletes make these, these decisions than fans generally bring to the table when they read about it. That you think they want an opportunity to say, hey, I'm a human being. This is why I made this decision. Let's talk some stats for a minute about the Players' Tribune. Uh, you just talked about five minutes being the average time spent on the website. Uh, here's some other stats. 57% of your audience is between the ages of 18 and 34. 77% is between 18 and 44. 25% of your audience is female. 2 billion monthly media impressions. 10 million video views per month. And as we talked at the top, 1,400 athlete contributors. Those are impressive uh, stats, Gary. I think we have an enormous reach. And if you, I mean, the simple math of the business that, that was in my head when we began was, you know, if you take the number of athletes you have and you multiply it by their social reach, that's a pretty big audience. Now, of course, it's not that simple. Uh, athletes don't retweet everything we do, nor should they. Uh, we are looking for ways to make our athlete database dynamic in the sense of which 30 athletes would be best to post something on Facebook about a story because they're actually interested in the story. You're trying to make that athlete community dynamic. Um, so um, I think that's a lot of the reason why you have you have a reach there. You have people that are really willing to retweet a story or, for more purposes, even better, post it on their Facebook page. 
And um, the one number you left out, and by the way, you did a great job there. I don't know that I got that line. Um, <laughs> you know, we do 100 to 120 million content views a month, which is far, means that it, you're looking at probably at times 10 uh, number of our actual, or maybe even larger of our actual on-site visitors. So maybe between 15 and 20 is a little more accurate. So the multiple there is enormous because we have that social reach. Yeah, let's talk about the social reach for a minute. I've always wondered, what's the recipe for engagement? Sometimes you post something and you think it's going to get great engagement and it doesn't. And other times you post something and you go, ah, this isn't going to get any engagement and, and it gets great engagement. So is is there like a recipe there for the audience listening to this? If you want to post something and get engagement, is there some tips? I mean, you really have to work, and, and you, we, I can't say we perfected it by any means, but you really have to work to find the, the institutional backing, in our case, teams, or leagues, mostly teams, right? Find the individuals, not necessarily the obvious ones, who will support you. Look for the people that really care. Don't just throw it out there in some spray of, of, of interest. You know, it's, it's harder work than you think, and... and for us, for example, when we've, done, we've been successful, as you mentioned, we've, we've got a female audience of some substance. We care about making sure that women's sports gets the kind of attention that they don't get from other media sites. So when we do a story on Pat Summit by her successor, and we can get more pages and counting on a story like that, it's because we know we get the support of University of Tennessee. We know we get the support of other coaches who respect Pat and want to, want to pay some memory. We know that going in, and we're on top of that when we publish. Um, and when we do that right, the stories always resonate. Resonate as much as we'd like them to every time. No, they don't. And sometimes stories we don't know quite have the moment that we think they will. But if you don't have a more focused plan, if your plan is just you're going to spray everything out there, I don't think you'll succeed. Gary Honig, the editorial director of the Players' Tribune, is joining us. You've got some regular features on the Players' Tribune. Letter to My Younger Self, What the Blank, and you've got the AFI Stand Together series going on. One of the ones that I've really enjoyed this year, though, is I Called Game. Paul Pierce, his final season in the NBA. You've been following him. What's that been like? I mean, Paul uh, is such an engaging personality and so funny about uh, the ego that, like, other athletes he brings to his, to the sport that just hearing him talk or talk to other folks is worth it. You, you know, we're doing a podcast series with him as well. Um, as he walks through the, the history of the NBA in different eras and then complains with his fellow veterans about where the game is gone. Um, if you, if you hear him talk about covering some of the greats of the game, it's, it's funny enough, but I mean, we've done a piece with Paul in the past in which he ranks the top five people in the league that are toughest to defend. And the fact that he ranked Carmelo Anthony over LeBron James alone was enough to get that piece half a million pages. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, Paul's got some salty opinions of his own, and he's not afraid to express them. They're always delivered with a slight sense of humor. Um, um, he's a very engaging person in person. I think anybody would find that. So anything he does, I think, brings value to the table. It's another element in, I think, I don't want to call it the magic, but the, the, the sauce that gives us success is just finding those athletes that actually have not only great presence in social media, not only great presence, you know, when they step to the plate or when they step to the foul line, but also have a personality that you know they're going to carry off the court or off the field and probably into media at some point. 
Yeah, I liked his me and KG piece, too, with Kevin Garnett. And you can tell, like with Paul Pierce, this is so smart that he's doing this, because if he does want to get into broadcasting or journalism or digital media, whatever, post-career, this has been a a really nice entree into that for him uh, post-career, I would think. Uh, You know, we'd like Paul to be doing that with us. We still plan to grow the company to where there's an opportunity to be that person with the Players' Tribune where we grow into other platforms, programs for the Netflixes of the world, for the uh, HBOs of the world, and our athletes uh, have a chance to be themselves in that kind of programming. I also find, and this comes from my ESPN experience, that athletes who work with us have a very different view of how they do that kind of job than they do when they go through the Bristol Mill. And I'm not saying that as any criticism of what ESPN does. Obviously, the audience for what they do is enormous, and they train athletes to work on programming in a way that suits the voice that they have. But I think when they come to us before that experience, um, it's a very unfiltered kind of athlete that you get. Even their view of uh, the chalkboard, their view of video, tends to be a little bit more uh, down to the bone and not homogenized as much as you'd see on Fox or ESPN or anywhere else. So is that something you just mentioned, doing some shows for Netflix or HBO? Is that kind of the next genesis or next generation for the Players' Tribune, doing specialty program that would live not only on the Players' Tribune, but maybe on some other platforms as well, like Netflix or HBO? No, that's, you know, I just came back from a West Coast, West Coast trip where we started talking to some folks about that. Yeah, we, we're definitely interested to carry what we do, extend the voice of the game, as it were, to as many platforms as possible, and that's a big one, for sure. Sports Business Radio is sponsored by Boingo Wireless, the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. Today's sports fans expect strong, fast mobile connections at their favorite stadiums. Research shows that fans will leave at halftime if they cannot get connected, which is part of the reason why professional and collegiate sports venues alike work with Boingo to manage their wireless networks. As the world's leading connectivity expert, Boingo knows how to make a venue's vision for the connected fan experience a reality. They are the only company that can provide end-to-end wireless service so teams can focus on the big game, not on their network. Boingo designs, installs, and manages Wi-Fi and cellular networks at university stadiums like K-State and the University of Houston and major league venues like Soldier Field, Phillips Arena, and Vivint Smart Home Arena. We're excited to showcase how technology is changing the business of sports, led by companies like Boingo. Boingo connects you to the people and things you love, like sports. For more information, visit boingo.com or email sports at boingo.com. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I'm the founder and CEO of the Sports PR Summit. The Sports PR Summit features East Coast and West Coast events that take place annually. The invite-only events bring together senior PR and social media executives from the pro and collegiate sports ranks, as well as from top sports corporations for panel discussions and valuable networking opportunities. Prominent media members and athletes share candid insights about the best ways for PR and social media executives to work most effectively with them. Fellow PR executives also share best practices. NASCAR legend Jeff Gordon, Boston Celtics star Isaiah Thomas, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman, Miami Dolphins owner Stephen Ross, and WNBA legend Lisa Leslie are just some of the people who have shared their perspective at our events. 
The 2017 Sports PR Summit will take place on Tuesday, May 23rd, at the Players' Tribune headquarters in New York City. The 2017 Sports PR Summit Social Media Workshop will take place on Wednesday, July 26th, at Twitter headquarters in San Francisco. Go to sportsprsummit.com to learn more about our events and to register. Now back to the podcast. So you launched a podcast network, too. I know you did an oral history podcast with the 1986 New York Giants championship team. I know you're going to have some athletes doing podcasts. We have a lot of people that listen to this podcast. What's the recipe for a good podcast in your mind? Uh, there's a couple of things. One, um, the, the belief I think we have that we can get pretty much anyone, which I think we delivered on the Giants podcast, to tell the true story, the real story of what happened at any given event or any given series, of, you know, season uh, or any given team. Uh, I think we can deliver on that promise and we can tell some great oral history stories. We plan to go back and visit the 2004 Red Sox team with David Ortiz. Uh, I get participants, both the Yankees and Red Sox, to talk about that rivalry. Wow. Um, so within that category, I think we can put some things on the board that other podcast producers can't. Um, in terms of athlete personalities, Kevin Durant has, has indicated an interest in doing one. We've already piloted one. We're about to do a second pilot with him. Of course, he wants to wait till the season's over, and that's perfectly understandable. But, you know, there's great interest interest from our digital, from our podcast partner, DG, on getting the right athletes to do podcasts. We have one coming from Aton Thomas, which is going to be about uh, um, athletes whose reputations have been, shall we say, established incorrectly by the media and giving them a chance to talk about who they really are. Uh, Aton uh, was a longtime NBA veteran and has a reputation, correct, a, a, a positive reputation, we're being able to speak truth to the to the media and speak truth for the athlete. Uh, that should be launched relatively soon. We talked about fall. Um, that one's coming out relatively soon as well. So uh, I think for me, looking at podcasts, it's a perfect extension of our quality. There it is, right? Get the athletes, get them talking about something. It's exactly what we do. If you give them the right structure, the right opportunity, the fans benefit as well. Yeah, no, I, I've always said one of the things that makes a podcast successful is unique content, something you're not going to hear anywhere else. And I think what you just described is very unique content and, and something that you won't hear anywhere else. I know that you guys have a, an increased focus with college and international athletes as well. It started out as, you know, focus on pro athletes, but now I see more focus on college and international athletes. Maybe you can discuss that effort. Well, I, I, we went to college because I think we, we, we are interested in, in young athletes who are about to come out and become pros, first off. I think. Um, as I said earlier, established athletes have have already worked on relationships with local media, with national media. Their, their media relationships are complicated, and it's difficult to, and probably, um, I think, a, a bad idea to try to get them to disconnect from every other media relationship just to work through us. There are plenty of reasons for them to work through us as an extension of their media strategy. But for us to start with young athletes and say, we want to be the place where you always feel safe communicating with fans and establishing your narrative before anybody else gets a chance to establish it for you, that's a real opportunity for us, and that's where we want to build in the future. Second, I think fan bases for colleges, alumni and students, are really fervent. 
Right. I mean, for a lot of for a lot of pro audiences, if the team has a lousy season, they lose interest, or in effect, they're rooting for laundry because too many people get traded or leave in free agency. Colleges are rooting for the school, and players who wear that uniform and wear it with dedication mean a lot to that fan base, and that fan base is sort of permanent and continues to be fed by kids who graduate and become alumni. And the schools are generally enthusiastic about helping us as well. So what I said earlier about making sure the social message gets out there, that if you can get a school behind what you're doing, um, it really makes a huge difference in terms of how many people wind up reading the story. Yeah. Now, international, that's been really interesting. We we uh, uh, we started doing some, some uh, football, as as they refer to it, the real football uh, stories on the site uh, fairly early on and um, got the attention of uh, some players over there. Uh, Sky, in particular, which is the exclusive media partner of the Premier League, uh, got in touch with us and said they really liked some of the stories we've done. And since then, we've informally had a relationship where they've run, I think, up to a dozen stories and gotten a, a substantial audience certainly above um, their average audience, and I think also certainly above their average time on, on page. And so that led us to the possibility of a partnership with them, which we hope will come to fruition at some point, um, and to the thought that we can develop a Players' Tribune international. Uh, uh, we can develop a presence fairly quickly if we find the right partner. Uh, I don't think we're not even up to think we know how to do that in a completely different media environment. Um, but I think the the things we've done with stories have found some resonance with European audiences as well. And um, we should take advantage of that. It means that there's a thirst for that kind of thing over there as well. I think that's smart. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Uh, Gary Honig from the Players Tribune editorial director is joining us. A few quick general questions. So we have a lot of students who listen to this podcast. What's your advice to the student who's in journalism school right now and looking ahead? What does that landscape look like? Because it's changing pretty drastically, as we've discussed before. I I feel very optimistic about where media is headed. I know that very uh, uh, represents a very small point of view at this point. But it seems to me that out of the ashes of uh, low CPMs, uh, clickbait, uh, fake news, if you would, comes the opportunity uh, for sites, uh, for media companies that focus on quality in relatively narrow areas that don't have to publish 30 times a day and that can give young people an opportunity to grow in that business without having to write pieces that are, actually, you know, that are just tossed out uh, to really learn their craft and, and to contribute to something of value. And my example of hockey is something that other people need to think about. I think there are probably successful, successful sites out there that have already discovered that in some niche areas. Um, I think my advice would be, first of all, that writing requires repetition. You don't get good at writing. It's not, a, not a, something you're born with. It's, it's, not, it's, it's actually a craft, and you only get better at it if you do it frequently. Now, listen, we all did In my time, you did it in newspapers. Today, you're doing it on sites. The question is, are you getting the kind of editing and guidance that will make you better. Well, I'm not so sure people who worked at tiny newspapers all over the country got it back then either. They had to learn on their own. I think the problem that exists right now is the lack of fact. Um, you need people who will teach you how to do what's right. 
Um, and maybe that's a little harder to come by. I'm not big on generational changes. It was so great back in the day, and now it's terrible. I don't know. The people I have working at the Tribune, I've said it to them, I'll say it to you. I've said it to other people, are some of the most extraordinarily gifted and also selfless writers and editors I've ever met. Um, they're not looking for bylines. They're looking to tell great stories and to help athletes tell them. Um, that kind of selflessness and that dedication, uh, if you've got that, you're going to succeed. I honestly believe that's true. It's, if you work with passion, if you're willing to work a lot of hours, if you care about the craft of writing, if you care about writing things that matter and you're writing things that are accurate, I think you'll find uh, a place in this business forever. The other thing I keep hearing from journalism schools is that they're trying to teach the students now to be a Swiss Army knife. You can't just be a good writer. You've got to be able to shoot photography. You've got to be able to shoot video. You've got to know how to post it and engage on social media. Like it used to be, if you were a talent, you would just show up and you'd be there with your camera person and they'd shoot you. Now I'm talking to the talent who's like, no, I got to shoot my own story. I got to write it. I got to post it on social media. Do you see that change too? I honestly think we're moving past that change. I actually thought the same thing. I don't want to say how long ago because that would make, you know, would make me sound like I was castigating people in journalism schools. But, you know, I, I certainly thought this in, in the mid O's. I don't really think this anymore. I think it's true that if you're a photographer, you have to be a videographer. I think you have to be creative about storytelling in a way maybe that you weren't before. But I don't think it's such a great idea to have writers shooting. Uh, I don't think it's such a great idea to have people who are doing interviews thinking about other things while they're doing those interviews or, for that matter, actually restricting um, the free flow of conversation with the idea that there's some photography or videoing that's coming after that. I mean, we've always thought of that kind of thing as the fly-on-the-wall photography or fly-on-the-wall camera. Forget there's a camera in the room. Just talk to me like there isn't. How do you do that if you're the guy that's actually doing the videography or the guy who's taking a picture? Um, I understand where that comes from, and it also means that you're, get, you're coming to the game with a bigger skill set, and so the possibility that you're being hired in places to close up, and there's certainly going to be a lot of places that put a premium on that. Uh, I don't think it's such a constructive way to think about what you do. You want to be doing what it is you do best and focus on that. Um, that may be a counterintuitive point at this point, but um, where we are, that's not what happens. Uh, the editors work with the, uh, with the athletes. Uh, photography is separate. Video is separate. It's not done with the idea that one person goes in and does everything. That's great advice. Uh, Gary, trends that you see coming in the future in the digital publishing space and on social media. I mean, we've seen Periscope and Facebook Live as tools. We see you know, VR is coming. There's so many other things that are coming in the digital space. What are you keeping your eye on? Um, I think that we're definitely moving from the site era to the find them where they are and get the audience there. I think it's very difficult if you don't have that scores and video advantage that say ESPN has or that Fox has to have people come to your site every day. It's 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 uh, it's it's actually causing the effect that I would I would define as legacy digital media very quickly. So you may have been and you can see it with with places like Yahoo and AOL, right? That those places were huge and very quickly became outdated. Uh, and so the question is, what's going to replace them? And I, obviously I think sites like us offer an advantage of that you get one particular kind of story in a way that you can't get it anywhere else, and that's all we're doing, right? So if you see places become 
much more boutique in that sense and not trying to do all things for all people and succeeding on that level. That's, first of all, an important thing in an era where clickbait is just not working anymore, where the CPMs keep plunging to the bottom. Um, the second thing is if you want to have a relationship with a celebrity or an athlete or any subject, you can't make your focus strictly how you make a buck. You can't constantly be denigrating the general uh, group of people you're trying to cover and expect them to say, oh, great, yeah, I'll talk to you, no problem. Um, that's a big issue, I think. Um, financially, from the from the point of view of where all this is headed, um, I, I, the big problem is that we're very dependent. If you look at you're using a distributed content model, as we are, as so many people are looking to, there's so much at the mercy of that Facebook logarithm that it doesn't feel like that's a continuing model you can depend on. So what do you use in re- to replace that? How does that change? I mean, I, I, there isn't an easy answer. Right now, if you have the right number of people with Facebook pages that are supporting what you do, you can count on a certain kind of audience, almost exclusive of that algorithm. But, you know, those feeds are very difficult to govern if that Facebook has changed them to their own advantage for a couple of weeks. And obviously Zuckerberg, if, if you see what he's done with Snapchat and how many features Snapchat he's already stolen, is a classic rapacious baron, right? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but he's going to look to add to his empire as many ways as possible. Um, so I, that's an issue. I don't know where that goes. And it's a difficult one to solve. As far as the other social media platforms, I hope Twitter continues. I hope it can sustain itself. Obviously, it's had some issues. Snapchat is valued at some sensational amount of money. Can they sustain that? It's obvious that they created an interesting storytelling medium and that they've been thinking about that. I think you see more and more distribution sites, one, taking some responsibility for what it is they publish, and two, thinking about storytelling instead of simply transmitting messages. And that's a big change, right? That means there's opportunity there again for some new kinds of storytelling to grow and thrive in an environment that wasn't all that friendly to it in the past. That's why I was so hopeful about this. The other riddle that digital media has been trying to solve for a long time, and I think you guys have done an excellent job with this, is how do you monetize it all, right? I mean, you've got great stories, you've got great content, but how do you monetize it? And I've seen your partnerships with American Family Insurance and your uh, Stand Together or Stand Up campaign. Uh, I've seen, I was in, you know, TPT uh, Studio B, Budweiser. You, you've got some clever partnerships. Is that the way to do it? Customize it instead of just saying, hey, you're going to be on our site and, and it's one size fits all on every story? Well, I think that's one large part of it. Obviously, that's the first place we've gone. It's a ripe opportunity. There's, there's advertising dollars starting to spill out, not only from traditional legacy media um, in print, but also from television. Right? You're starting to see a change in that environment as well. As more people cut the cord, as you see more people streaming their video. So, what are you offering those people? Is advertising dollars available to people? And by way of saying, we have a different way of communicating with the people you're trying to reach, and we know those people would spend some time with us. So obviously that's a right place for us to make money. The second opportunity, I think, and I've been an advocate of this for a long time, is paid content, is paid experiences. And I think the media in general has been so frightened of the prospect of doing that that they just ignored it and said, we're the only business that's afraid to charge for what it is we do. Um and I've been saying this for a long time, by the way. And these, uh, my, my experience with that comes from having run Insider for ESPN for a number of years. 
um, and seeing those subscriptions grow with an intelligent idea of what it is that fans want to pay for, um, I think we have a huge opportunity to make money in those areas, and we will explore them in the next couple of years. Um, and I don't think you can succeed with this kind of media unless you do that. You need multiple sources of revenue. You see, even in legacy media, a company like The Atlantic finding a way to sustain some of the best journalism in the business through an event business, through creating something from the value of their brand that reaches their audience in different ways and collects revenue directly from that audience. I think we need to think more about that if we're going to succeed in the future. Because, listen, if you are looking at the amount of dollars being spent on media today against the amount of information available to people today, it's just not enough dollars to cover that in the advertising business. They've got to figure out how to make money in more than one way. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Uh, before I let you go, let's discuss the Sports PR Summit coming up May 23rd at the Players' Tribune. We did our event with you guys last year. Just an insightful day. Uh, you are on a panel this year inside the Modern Newsroom. You're with Mary Byrne of ESPN.com, Richard Deitch of Sports Illustrated, Brian Cohen, who's on Good Morning Football on the NFL Network. It's moderated by John Schwartz of NASCAR. And the point of the panel, Gary, is, you know, if you're a PR person and you're pitching you or Richard or Mary or Brian, like, what is the best way to pitch your story? Because it's so different now than it was five or ten years ago. So I, I'm looking forward to that conversation. Well, I mean, I, I don't I don't think I would have said anything similarly five or ten years ago, to be honest. The, the pitch has got to reflect an honest understanding of, first of all, the environment you're pitching to, and second, what is the real story behind what you're doing? I recognize that people are sometimes stuck with selling things that can't quite make into a good story, um, and that their job is to figure out how to get somebody else to do it for them. But in many cases, the pitch doesn't seem focused enough, nor does it seem like you've thought about who I am or what my what I represent in terms of an organization. Um, it's just, um, uh, I don't think that changes a whole lot. I'm interested in hearing what, I'm certainly interested in seeing what Richard has to say, he's an old friend. Um, uh, you know, that's going to be an interesting conversation because each of these places has a different agenda as a media organization. And if you don't stop and think, Again, you know, when I talked about social strategy earlier, think about the audience you're trying to reach before you send the pitch. Uh, listen, this is I know that the job of, uh, that you guys have on a day-to-day basis is difficult and often requires, you know, many different decisions about many different pitches every day. So I'm not suggesting that every pitch needs to be written by Tolstoy, but you do have to give some thought to who you're pitching to. When you, if you can get them on the phone, how do you convince them that it's right for what they do as opposed to for what you need? No, I totally agree. It, it needs to be customized and deeply customized. And, you know, I'm in this weird position because I've been a strategic PR person for a long time. So I'm, I'm using relationships and trying to get stories told. But then also as the host of sports business radio for 13 years, I probably get, you know, 50 pitches a day being thrown at me. So it's interesting to right. see what's going out and then what's coming in. And the ones I hate are the ones that are one size fits all. They're not customized and. You know, they obviously didn't do their research on on what we discuss here on this podcast. The other thing about Sports PR Summit is the Players' Tribune panel. You had Isaiah Thomas from the Celtics last year. You had Larry Sanders. Uh, you had some great people on your panel, not only discussing their work with Players' Tribune, but just the value of 
coming to Players Tribune is, is a platform and, and that you can tell the story on several different platforms within your platform, whether it's audio, video, text. That was great. So uh, I'm interested to see who you guys are going to bring in uh, this year as well. I, I don't know who the final list is, but I can promise you that we try to bring in people who are willing to discuss why they told their story, uh, what um, what brings authenticity to their story, and if you know if that word is out there every day in a hundred different applications. Uh, when you hear it told by someone who's actually gone through, as Larry did, Isaiah obviously comes through a terrible time right now. We right. Just, you know, all we've done is give him our best wishes and stayed away from it. There's no upside to, to trying to step into somebody's personal life and ask them to, to do something about it, and even when they're ready. But in the case of Isaiah, you know, he's, he's a guy who was a last guy picked in the draft has become a star, a league-wide star, but a star in a very media-hungry, a, media, a very sports-hungry audience in Boston. Who's um, a great kid and had a good story to tell. And hearing him tell his story and give you an idea of what we do, but also give you an idea of what authenticity really means, as opposed to what's sold every day. I think that's a great value to that audience. Yeah, and it was interesting, I mean, candidly, to hear their thoughts on, on dealing with the media as well. Cause, you know, some of them have some pretty sharp opinions of, of what they think of dealing with the mainstream media versus telling their story, uh, on a site like the Players Tribune. So that was eye-opening as well. Gary Honig, the editorial director of the Players Tribune. You can find them online at theplayerstribune.com or on Twitter at Players Tribune. Gary, I look forward to seeing you next month in New York at the Sports PR Summit. I do as well, and thanks for having me, Brian. Thank you very much. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I'm sitting in locker rooms with athletes and coaches and boardrooms with executives for our firm Everything is on the Record. Our interactive and engaging trainings help our clients better navigate the tricky social media and media landscape that exists today. In a day and age where everything is on the record and can be broadcast in real time on Periscope or Facebook Live, the margin of error is very slim, and your brand and the brands you are connected to can be ruined in just seconds. As the VP of Outside Perspective, we can say the delicate things that need to be said to your high-profile executives, athletes, or coaches. From the WNBA and the NBA to Major League Soccer and the NWSL, to a variety of corporate clients, top leagues, teams, brands, and corporations, they trust us to guide their key spokespeople. Learn more about our services and see how we can guide you by visiting everythingisontherecord.com. Now back to the podcast. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. Thanks to our friends at Boingo Wireless for powering our Sports Business Radio Roadshow. Follow them online at boingo.com or on Twitter at Boingo. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast. Go to iTunes, type in Sports Business Radio. We're rated in the top 50 business news podcasts. You can also find our show on Audio Boom via the TuneIn Radio and Stitcher apps, and, of course, at sportsbusinessradio.com. Follow me on Twitter in between shows at SB Radio. Follow us on Instagram at sportsbusinessradio. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio.